0: Good morning everyone. It's wonderful to see you all. Um, So today is the first week of a new series here at Forefront and I get the pleasure of introducing it to you. So um, the series is called Her Story and over the next few weeks we are going to be exploring um, some of the stories of women in scripture. So uh, we will be um, looking at some stories of women in the Bible. We will also be looking at some of the feminine representations of God that we find in Scripture. But first off, today, I'm going to begin by talking about reading the Bible as a woman. Um, And I am going to be kind of challenging some of the traditional patriarchal interpretations of Scripture um, and offering you some alternatives. And I'm also going to introduce you to something that is called autobiographical exegesis, but we'll get onto that a bit later. Um, But first up, I want to acknowledge, right here at the beginning of this series, that the whole idea of her story and a series that looks at women and scripture kind of takes a very binary view of gender, of female and male. And of course we know that gender is a spectrum, it's not a binary, and there are many, many people, including folks here in our congregation, for whom that binary just doesn't fit them. So a lot of the um, traditional patriarchal interpretations of scripture uh, really enforce a very strict binary between female and male. Um, They're very invested in maintaining that binary. Hopefully, um, some of the uh, things that I'm talking about today and some of the ways I'm going to suggest of doing a more inclusive um, interpretation of the Bible will also be helpful for folks uh, whose lived experience of gender is just way uh, more expansive than just female or male. But the series is called Her Story, and so I'm going to begin by um, sharing with you all a little bit of my story um, about my relationship with the Bible beginning when I was a child. So when I was a kid, I really loved to read. Um, And when I was reading a book, I just felt like I disappeared into a different world. I had a really vivid imagination. I found it very easy to identify with the characters in a story. And I just felt like what was happening to them was happening to me. And I read constantly. So my family didn't own a TV. um, So growing up as kids, our options were kind of reading, or playing outside and I grew up in England and the weather is not always that great for playing outside so I spent most of my time reading um, and as a good Christian kid I knew that I was also supposed to read the Bible and I was supposed to love the Bible and the problem was I didn't really love the Bible I really loved Jesus but I didn't really like the Bible very much and one of the reasons for that was because of the way that women were treated in the Bible, or the way that the Bible talked about women. And so sometimes, reading the Bible as a kid, I came across what are known as the texts of terror. Now, these are stories, they're mostly in the um, Old Testament, uh, that talk about violence, often sexual violence, against women. Um, And it was the feminist theologian Phyllis Tribble that gave them that name, the texts of terror, uh, and they of course, they're not the kind of Bible stories that they tell you in Sunday school. Um, but because I was a prolific reader, I kind of found them accidentally on my own in the Bible, and I read them. Um, so some, some well-known texts of terror are uh, the, the treatment of Hagar, who is a slave, who is given by Sarah to Abraham. She is impregnated by Abraham, and then she's cast out into the desert, pregnant and alone. There is Jephthah's daughter, who is murdered by her own father... At various different points in the Old Testament, there are thousands of young women who are kidnapped into forced marriage or sexual slavery at different points. And then there is the very worst story of all in Judges chapter 19, which tells of the gang rape and murder and dismemberment of an unnamed woman. Now, a lot of people don't even know that story is in the Bible, but it is there. So when I came across these stories, you might imagine I was horrified. And the way that I had been taught to read the Bible meant that I just had no way to cope with passages like this, with stories about uh, terrible things being done to women where God seems to be silent. Because the way that I had been taught to read the Bible was very devotional. So I was told things like, um, the Bible is a rule book for life, or the Bible is God's love letter to you. (laughs) And... I was told that the Bible was the Word of God I was kind of taught that God wrote the Bible and so I'm thinking if God wrote the Bible then is this how God thinks like did God not care about the women in these stories does God care less about women and girls does God not care about me and then there was the New Testament so Uh, one day when I was a young teenager I just picked up a book off one of the bookshelves in my home that I thought looked interesting and I started reading it. Now I can't remember the exact title of this book, Uh, it was the 90s, I know it had a very pretty pale pink cover and it said something like, um, the role of women or what does the Bible really say about women? Um, And I later found out that this wasn't a book my parents had bought It had been sent to my feminist mother by a magazine that wanted her to review it. But I picked up the book and I started reading, and what I read made me really confused and upset. Because this book outlined what I later in life learned is called a complementarian theology of the roles of men and women. So based out of a couple of verses in Ephesians, this book told me that men and women are fundamentally different and have fundamentally different roles as designed and ordained by God, that men should lead and women should follow, and men should act and women should submit. And the author of this book said that this is what the Bible clearly teaches. So reading this, (laughs) every fibre of my being knew that this was wrong. And the feelings of dread and rage and discomfort that rose up in me were overwhelming. But at the same time, I was really confused. I thought, well, if the Bible really clearly says this, then is this what God thinks? Am I a second-class citizen in God's sight? Am I supposed to spend my life obeying and submitting and staying silent? And then, as I got older, I started to notice that in the Bible, a lot of women in the stories do not have names. So, in the Old Testament, we hear about Jephthah's daughter, and Lot's wife, and Lot's daughters, and Potiphar's wife, and the Levite's concubine. And this also happens in the New Testament. So, there is um, the woman with the issue of blood, or the Samaritan woman, or the woman caught in adultery. And then there's Jairus's daughter, and Peter's mother-in-law. So these women are often unnamed, or else they're defined solely by their relationship to men. So I was learning that reading the Bible as a woman can be interesting, <laughs> and that as a woman, Reading Bible stories and looking for someone to identify with can be tough. But then about three years ago, I went to a conference in Los Angeles, and I heard a talk about biblical interpretation that completely changed the way that I relate to Scripture. And it's not an exaggeration to say that it changed my life, because it made me actually love Scripture probably for the first time. And this talk was given by an amazing theologian who is called Dr. Cheryl Anderson, and this is her. Um, And she is professor of Old Testament at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. And full disclosure, you are gonna hear her name a lot this morning because most of what I'm gonna talk about comes directly out of her work. So I'm gonna get a little bit geeky for a second and I'm gonna talk to you about exegesis. So how many of you have ever heard that word before, exegesis? Okay. And how many of you have heard the word eisegesis? One, maybe. Okay, interesting. So exegesis is one of those theology words that they teach you at seminary. Um, And there's often a distinction that gets made between exegesis and eisegesis. So the idea is that exegesis means to draw from the text and interpret it. So it's about drawing out what the text really means. Um, And there's an assumption that this is objective and it's unbiased and this is good. So exegesis means the interpreter makes the scripture say what God has to say. Okay? But then eisegesis, in contrast, means to read into the text. And the implication given is that you're reading into the text something that isn't actually there. And the idea is that this kind of interpretation is um, subjective and it's biased and that's a bad thing. So eisegesis means the interpreter makes the text say what he wants it to say. So has anyone ever heard that before, that kind of distinction? Yeah, okay. Well, Dr. Anderson says, that this distinction between the idea of exegesis and eisegesis is a false one. It doesn't really hold up. Because there is no such thing as a neutral or unbiased reading. Every interpretation of scripture is just that, it's an interpretation. And every interpretation is coming from a particular perspective because nothing happens in a vacuum. And this is the part that really blew my mind. Dr. Anderson says, that many of the interpretations of the Bible that we've inherited and that we've always been told are neutral or unbiased or the correct interpretation are simply interpretations from the perspective of powerful, white, heterosexual men. And you can think that this is okay only as long as you truly believe that this group of people is normative represents all of humanity and that God only speaks to them. Otherwise, we have to be open to new ways of interpreting texts. And so she says, and I quote, the particularity of one small segment of humanity, the privileged white Western heterosexual male can no longer masquerade as representing the diversity and fullness of God's creation. Wow right? (laughs) You can see why this blew my mind. And not only that, but the interpretation of the Bible solely from the perspective of these men for centuries creates a culture and values that become the dominant norm. So they actually become so institutionalised and deeply ingrained in the church and in the wider society that in the end they are upheld by people even by people who don't benefit from them. So women and people of colour and poor folks and queer folks and non-Europeans have so absorbed this interpretation of scripture as if it's the right one, as if it's the only one, that they will continue to uphold it even when it doesn't benefit them and sometimes even when it harms them. So Dr. Anderson tells a story of a young African-American woman, a high school student, Um, from a very conservative church and she really pushed back against dr anderson's attempt to introduce a new way of interpreting scripture it was just so different from what she'd been taught and in her frustration this young woman raised up her bible in the air and she said this is the word of god if it says slavery is okay slavery is okay if it says rape is okay rape is okay And Dr. Anderson says, I had assumed that her identity as an African American and a female would have given her a different perspective on these texts about slavery and rape, but it did not. Now, I'm sure I don't have to explain why that is so harmful. And Dr. Anderson argues that the church has failed to take into account the perspectives of women on Scripture. And also the effect of traditional interpretations on women. The consequences for women. And that as a result, the gifts of women for ministry have been undervalued. And the great contributions that women have historically made in the church have been ignored. And she concludes that interpreting the Bible only from one perspective has negative consequences for anyone who is other and that for the health and well being of everyone, we have to interpret the Bible inclusively. So, that's a lot to take in. Um, I want to pause for a second and just talk about what this doesn't mean. Okay, so this doesn't mean that we're trying to twist scripture and make it say what we want it to say. And this doesn't mean some kind of an existentialist belief that there is no such thing as truth. And this doesn't mean that we think the Bible is unreliable or that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead or any of the things that I think sometimes evangelicals can get anxious uh, will happen if we don't um, enforce a certain interpretation of scripture. It simply means that when people from different cultures uh, with different identities and lived experiences read the same text they will notice different things. They will resonate with different parts, different characters. They might even draw different conclusions. So bearing all of this in mind, how should we interpret scripture? Well, Dr. Anderson suggests that we should interpret scripture from the perspective of the marginalised and offer an alternative exegesis. And she calls this an autobiographical exegesis because it grows out of the lived experience, the autobiography of the person doing the interpreting. And a really, really great example of someone who did this incredibly well was Reverend Dr. James Cone. So this is him. Um, Dr. Cohn lived right here in New York City. He taught at Union Theological Seminary up near Riverside Park. And he actually passed away on April 28th this year, so just a few weeks ago. Dr. Cohn was the founder of Black Liberation Theology, which interprets the Bible through the lens of African-American experience and reveals the gospel as good news of liberation for the oppressed. And Dr. Cohn said... Theology is always done for particular times and places and addressed to a specific audience. And this is true whether theologians acknowledge it or not. Although God is the intended subject of theology, God does not do the theology, human beings do theology. And he said that there is no such thing as an abstract, neutral, unbiased, objective revelation. That is separate from our human experience. In fact, we all come to the text and interpret it through our lived experience and our identity. And everyone who's ever read and interpreted scripture has been biased in some way. That's okay. This diversity of interpretation actually adds to the richness of scripture and it can draw out truths from God that we might otherwise miss. So Dr. Cohn said, every people has a story to tell. So we need to stop only reading scripture through the eyes of one tiny segment of humanity. Even if they've given us some really wonderful insights, there are other insights to learn, and there are new stories to hear. So how is exegesis different when we acknowledge that it's autobiographical? read through the lens of people's experience. How can we benefit from this way of reading scripture? Well, firstly, I think that the insights of people who have traditionally been marginalised can reveal truths about God that the privileged do not see. And so here's a great example of this. I think there's this idea that a lot of Christians have that um, back in the day, like in the olden days, everyone interpreted passages about slavery or women, LGBTQ folks, in a certain way. But now, we're more enlightened and we look back and we realize that we had been interpreting them wrongly. And the impression that is always given is that this is a new revelation. Like, of course, now we know that, for instance, slavery was wrong all along, but at the time, no one realized that. Well, this is just not true. So the truth is of course that all along there were Christians who knew that any interpretation of scripture that said slavery is okay was the wrong interpretation. Who were they? Enslaved Christians, black Christians. Their autobiographical exegesis, their lived experience cried out against oppressive interpretations of scripture and that were seen by white people as orthodox and mainstream. Enslaved Christians knew that slavery was wrong, and history shows that they were right. So embracing this autobiographical exegesis means that we can be critical of things we see happening in the Bible, like slavery and the abuse of women. And feminist theologian Dr. Phyllis Tribble talks about this as wrestling with Scripture. And she tells us to wrestle with the text until it gives you a blessing. And this idea, of course, is based on the Old Testament story of Jacob wrestling with the stranger, wrestling with God. And Phyllis Tribble says, Jacob's defiant words to the stranger I take as a challenge to the Bible itself. I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let go of the book unless it blesses me. I will struggle with it. I will not turn it over to my enemies that use it to curse me neither will I turn it over to my friends who wish to curse it. So in this quote, she is saying, I will not allow fundamentalists or biblical literalists to use the Bible as a weapon against me, denying my equality or my full humanity. But equally, I will not allow folks who disregard my faith to curse the Bible or to say that it's wrong or it's irrelevant or it's outdated. Instead... I will struggle, interpret these old texts in new ways, and not give up until I receive a blessing. And this way of engaging with Scripture does not mean that the Bible is not inspired, it does not mean that the Bible is not God breathed. It just means that God is still breathing, God is still speaking. And by exploring an autobiographical exegesis from voices who have been underrepresented, we can learn new things, new truths from God. And again, this doesn't mean that everything written by a cis straight white man is terrible or wrong. It just means it's not the only thing. And for the many, many of us who do not fit inside that small segment of humanity, we need to be able to develop our own theological voice. So if you only remember one thing from this morning, remember this. Who you are is not a barrier between you and the text that you need to remove or change in order to read it correctly or neutrally or unbiasedly. Who you are is a gift that you bring to the text that enables you to reveal who God is in a way that nobody else can. Find your own theological voice. Jesus and Paul both did this. They reinterpreted Hebrew scriptures all the time. And one example of that comes from the text that Leslie read for us this morning. In Genesis chapter 1, it tells us that both female and male are created in the image of God. But in Galatians 3, Paul tells us there is no longer male and female. Both of these things are important insights. Female and male are created in the image of God. God is neither male nor female, yet at the same time somehow fully male and fully female. And this realization is important because when we say, that each human being is made in the image of God, it means that each human being individually fully bears God's image, which means that a woman fully bears the whole image of God just as much as a man. But at the same time, in Christ, there is no longer male and female. The old has gone, the new has come. And finally, I recently watched a video um, where Bell Hooks, who is one of the key voices on feminism and race in our society, actually talks about her faith. And in this video, um, she says that as she daily encounters sexism and racism, it it is her faith that sustains her. And she says, my faith keeps me from having some notion that men are bad and women are good. My faith always keeps me on the transcendent path knowing that we are always more than our race, our gender, our sexual practice, that we are, in fact, transcendent spirit. Or as our scripture says, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, thank you that you created us in your image, in all of our diversity. Help us to listen when you speak. And hear all of the truths that you have for us. Amen.